Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. One of the challenges of traveling is managing your money. If you're tired of getting crushed by bank fees and exchange rates, you need to check out wise.com. I have been a customer for over 10 years. This is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. It's been essential for me first as a traveler, then later as a digital nomad and an expat living abroad, running a business from around the world. You get one account, which allows you to send, spend, and convert money internationally, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. You can join 16 million customers, learn how the Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to Wise for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at nissanusa.com. What a show we've got for you today. My guest is Dylan Thuris. He's the co-founder of Atlas Obscura. It's one of my favorite travel resources out there. They have a global community of millions of explorers who have created a comprehensive database of the world's most wondrous places and foods. And today, he is going to share his personal top seven hidden wonders of the world, one continent at a time. And keep in mind, this is what Dylan does for a living. He curates an eclectic mix of foods, destinations, sites, natural wonders from all over the world. So he has a lot of knowledge to draw on. I was really curious to hear how he would boil this list down to uh, seven. And I also had him pair a food with each of these sites and destinations. So a lot of really interesting stories to go along with each of these that he mentions. A lot of fun to be had here as a listener. I had a blast recording this and you'll hear as the list reveals itself a lot of unexpected things on this list. And I suppose that's to be expected when you talk to Dylan. So please enjoy the show. On top of that, I'm going to share a quick personal update, something that was a thrill for me, one of my big bucket list items and a few lessons I learned from that and a shout out to somebody in this community all of that happening right now so buckle up strap in thanks for being here and welcome to the zero to travel podcast my friend you're listening to the zero to travel podcast where we explore exciting travel-based work lifestyle and business opportunities helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams and now your host world wanderer and travel junkie jason moore Hey, what's up? It's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show. Thanks for hanging out, for being here, for letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms, to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, This is a community-powered show. Let us not forget. I always like to remind you to please get in touch if you haven't done so, you have a guest recommendation, you just want to say hi, drop me a line. Jason at zero to travel.com is my email. Of course, I leave a, a link to my voicemail box where you can leave me a message. Uh, it takes literally 90 seconds. So get in touch, say hi, make this show for you. I've got some exciting guests and topics we're going to be covering soon. I'm actually physically rubbing my hands together like, 
not rubbing them together like I'm um, in charge of an evil empire rubbing them together, but more more of the sort of palms rubbing them together excitedly thing. The Mr. Miyagi meets, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Anyway, I'm excited. So if you haven't subscribed to this show yet, you should subscribe. There's uh, plenty of cool stuff coming your way. I do want to give a shout out to somebody here in this community because I like to shout out those listeners who are taking action to create their own life of travel. Now the shout outs for Adam. Congratulations, Adam. Drop me a line. Said transition to travel contender? Perhaps we might have Adam on the show later this year because here's what he told me. Said greetings from gray and rainy Ireland. I hope you're doing well. Big fan of the podcast. Been listening for a couple years and love learning from the amazing guests you bring on the show, particularly the nomadic folk. I'm reaching out as of next year. I will be leaving for an 18-month solo backpacking trip around South America. The plan is to learn about the culture and heritage of Latin America as well as seeing the cities, towns, and history. Also, we'll be doing a lot of long-distance multi-day hikes through Patagonia and the Andes. 26 year old, years old, and we'll be quitting a well-paid job to allow for this adventure. I plan to quit in December. Super excited about this. So, I just wanted to say, Adam, congrats. No small decision. Sounds like he, he said he's been working and prepping uh, and saving for this for over two years by the time he leaves. So, it's about the big picture, my friends, right? Yes, two years may seem like a long time, but look at the payoff there. An 18-month solo backpacking trip, and who knows where life's going to lead him after that and beyond. So congratulations. just want to give Adam some props there. I always love to highlight people in the community taking action to create their own life of travel. One last thing before we get into the interview. I do have an exciting personal update, something that I've wanted to do my, I couldn't say my whole life. I, I didn't know it was a thing I could do when I was born, I guess, but uh, for a long time. Finally got to do that, and I wanted to share what that was and a few lessons I learned that you can take away, just a little food for thought. So stick around after the interview for that. This conversation kicks off right away with a fascinating story on how this somewhat mythical creature uh, we discussed came to be. You're also going to hear Dylan's amazing uh, top seven hidden wonders of the world list. There may be a miracle food in there. There may be some natural wonders you've never heard about. All kinds of fun stuff. So please enjoy this interview and I will see you on the other side, my friend. Well, you got your coffee, right? Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that mug. Mm. It looks like there's a... Is that a oh, jackalope? Yeah. Is that a jumping no, jackalope? Okay. No, it's it's a real it's a real animal. It's a white white tailed deer, and um, you know I collect when I when we go someone my wife and I go someplace weird and interesting we buy a coffee mug which like we just have you know like we break the coffee mugs whatever like they're just kind of in rotation um, we don't keep them special but this is from a place uh, in Seneca New York um, which you can't really go to anymore um called the seneca white deer it's got an amazing story actually it's it was a army depot in during the cold war and it's huge it's gigantic it's like i don't know twelve thousand square acres something i don't know it's gigantic it's really big uh, and it was like for storing like pieces of or actual like 
atomic bombs. Like it was really high security and they fenced off the entire area of this army depot. And in doing so, they trapped like this huge population of deer. And among that deer population that were now trapped inside of this fence, um, this is kind of like land island, uh, a few of them had a natural genetic mutation that made them made them entirely white. They're not al- they're not it's not albinism, but it's a different it just it makes their their fur white. It has a, a different name. Um, and then one of the one of the uh, sergeants um, basically said, you you know, people, the, the soldiers were hunting on the property and he said, OK, you can hunt the not white deer, but you can't you can't shoot any of the white deer. And what that meant was like it created like a tiny evolutionary microcosm where it was this, you know, this pressure on the non-white deer population and the white deer population were not being killed by hunters. So over time, they expanded into a herd of like a, a few hundred, 300, 400 um, white, white-tailed deer. And in the last couple of years, there's been this guy named Dennis Money. Uh, he signs his name with a money sign. Uh, but, uh, he, who's, who's been trying to turn it into a kind of attraction and like, you know, historical park, but it, it, because of disputes with the landowner, cause there's a different guy who owns a big piece of the land, it's sort of fallen apart. So it's like not really visitable at the moment, but for a while you could go and take like bus tours and, uh, but we went up there to shoot a video about the white deer and they're, it's beautiful. They're amazing. They're like. They'd like emerge from the woods, these sort of like ghostly deer and go bounding across this weird like landscape of 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 bunkers that are all left behind. I don't know. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, that's wild because it definitely looked like a mythical creature or something. So it's a <laughs> really fascinating look, story. When yeah, they look like when we were there, it was really foggy too. So you'd like you could right. they were like hard to find and they'd like emerge out of this fog. It was it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> So this is uh, this place in Seneca, New York, is like uh, it's like the Galapagos Islands of New York, or something. Yeah, 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 <laughs> or at least of that of that uh, that environment, and and it's like that idea of sort of like a land island where a bunch of animals end up getting fenced in is like very interesting. Like, I'm not sure I could think of other examples, but I'm sure there are. No, and it's also just this combination of you know, nature, but bringing in like the element of what humanity does with atomic bombs and everything, and then merging those two together. So it's like natural, but not natural. You know? Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it does make me think a little bit about both like the DMZ and Chernobyl, which are places which have become, you know, accidental nature preserves um, and really have like now incredibly robust natural populations. So, so much so in, in the DMZ, um, that most of the environmental advocates around there are against demining the demilitarized zone between North Korea and South Korea because it, they say it would disrupt the the uh, ecological environment too much and then and then like basically like you know harm the harm the animals. Um, but yeah, really fascinating places where humans have basically like made themselves have made become entirely inhospitable to human life then become extremely inviting to animal life over time. Uh, yeah. yeah. Your coffee mug must be extensive because you just basically <laughs> described yeah. what you do for a living. You're like, yeah, hey, I get coffee mugs. My wife and I get coffee mugs from places that we find that are, you know, sort of interesting, obscure, if you will, places. Yeah. And it's like, well, okay, Dylan. Not, not, every, <laughs> I mean, not every place sells a coffee mug. We break okay. them, you know, so, but yes, we have a, we got a handful. 
it's sad when we when we break one that's like really i had a coffee mug from the clown motel out in nevada and i was sad when that broke because that was a good one you figured out a way to create a living just around following your curiosity in a sense right uh yeah I, i mean i think my job is less glamorous than people think it is i should say that like right out of the gate i mean i like it's like anything. It's there's a lot of like emails and meetings and and whatever the things that go into just like having a life. I've got little kids, so the other side of my life is filled with all the things that come with having little kids. Then my life is a normal. I live a largely n- normal life. Um, I think I'm really fortunate in that. You know, I've been doing this for 12 years now. This is this is the thing. This was the bet that I made when I was like 25, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna like do this until it works. Right. Well, and, you went all in basically. And it worked. It, it took a long time, but it worked. You know, I mean, it's, I, I think it's like, it's, it's, um, I spent the first two years basically were unpaid. Uh, first year for sure. Second year kind of, but I was still working a bunch of other jobs. And then for a while it was run as like a really tight, small business in the sense. And when I mean tight, I don't mean like emotionally, although that's, true too but like tight in just the fact that like it was you know we were we were it was really terrifying to try and make payroll for like five people at the end of a of a of a month and that's was how we ran for like almost three years Uh, and then we finally you know we were able to raise money which always sort of that that does still feel slightly miraculous to me um but yeah i mean i feel really fortunate to get to do this work it's really it's 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 a great joy of my life that this is this is what my um yeah this is what pays pays my bills yeah but you I, do you're doing a similar thing though yeah you're, you're not in a, you know well yeah. no i mean i appreciate the transparency because yes you know from the outside looking in it can be like well yeah dylan just gets to talk about all these interesting places and go to visit them and buy coffee mugs from them and you know <laughs> yeah. but running a business is is a is a whole thing as, as you know, how has that been for you? Like, how have you changed personally just going from owning the small business that you described to now having a major company with 60 some employees? About that, 50 some, 55, yeah. 60, yeah. It's been interesting. It's a lot of letting go, you know, it took a lot of letting go. You, you, you have to learn to sort of, um, let the thing grow on its own because if you're really, if you're successful, I, I think, you know, it's like, this is such a cliched analogy, but I can already tell that it's similar in a sense to raising a child, having had a business. Um, you know, I haven't done it. My kids are still little, so they're still in that like small kind of cuddly phase. But like, you know, a lot of it is learning to let the thing grow in the way it needs to grow and also acknowledging your own um what you're not good at. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of stuff that you're people, you know, and, and acknowledging what you are good at and leaning into the strengths and, and, and letting other people do the things that you're not good at or giving, um, you know, control over to someone. I, we, when we raised money, we hired a CEO. Um, and I had been doing everything really day to day before. And that was a hard transition for me because I was not used to not making every single decision. I mean, me and my business partner, but, but he, you know, he was more remote, uh, must have been kind of nice, though. You know, you're like, all right, finally, I don't have to make every single decision. <laughs> it was, it was, it eventually was nice. At first, it was not nice. It was hard. It was hard. And I, but I think, but it was definitely the right thing to do. It was like a hundred, you know what I mean? I think it would never, had I sort of stayed in the mode that I needed to do everything, I would have burned myself out. I like couldn't 
have both like had children and run the company the way I was running, you know, it was, it was, it just wouldn't have worked. So, um, it was good. It was the right thing to do, but I think it's, and it's a, it's a complicated, it's a living organ thing, you know, and, and any, any business comes with like both joy and sort of pain, uh, as just part of the process. Um, so. Yeah, it's definitely helpful too, like you said, to have a, develop an awareness around your limitations in many ways, right? And then, and then to acknowledge them. That's why I think, you know, travel and entrepreneurship for me at least are probably the two biggest sort of accidental self-development tools in my life yeah. in some way, right? Like I didn't go into it being like, well, I'm going to use travel and entrepreneurship as to develop myself as a person, but sneakily, it just, you're kind of confronted they, with they a lot force of things. your hand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, and you're just, then you're just like doing the things that you got to do to be a person. Yeah, no, I, I've had the same experience. Uh, how did you stumble into doing all the stuff that you're doing? What was your sort of process? Yeah. I, well, for me, it was just getting so excited about hearing all the different ways you could travel when I was traveling around the world and then just wanting to share that with people. You know, having the conversations in the hostel where I was like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I'm doing this or I'm working on yachts or I'm, you know, all these, I'm like, this is like blowing my mind right now that you can, you know, not have a lot of money and still see the world. And I felt like people had to know this. And uh, so then it was just a, you know, similar to you, I think it's just, I was compelled to share the stories, if you will. And, you know, what is, I mean, stories, what life is all about, right? I mean, it's... This is what makes the world an interesting place. Um, I mean, I know you've you've got some to share today. Um, I before we kind of get into the list because we are going to do this. I know you came with a list of the top seven hidden wonders of the world, and you have your new book, Gastro Obscura: A Food Adventurer's Guide, which is really cool. It's a whirlwind tour. Should mention of more than five hundred unexpected dishes, unique ingredients, and fascinating culinary traditions from around the world. So we decided, oh, this will be really cool to make this list. Or you've you know you've written about or been to tons of these places. Obviously, you have. Atlas Obscura, one of the biggest websites out there, I think, in travel. And, you know, taking one of those from each continent and then pairing them with a culinary curiosity from the new book. So that would be really fun. Uh, before we get it, I just had a couple things I wanted to ask you. I, I wanted to ask about your recent internal review and update of your database to ensure, this is, I'm using quotes here, to ensure the platform reflects less of a Western gaze and helps to decolonize travel and provide richer narratives. I think this is really important. And I wanted to hear why you guys came to that decision and what that sort of looks like from a practical standpoint. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, 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 it's a process that's still undergoing. And I think is a kind of forever process in a way. Um, and I think it, it, it comes with two parts. One part, you know, well, we, we just looked at our database and we, you know, even now, you know, you, we, there's like an acknowledgement that we still are, very heavily skewed towards the Western world. And that's largely because we're an English language site. I mean, that has a huge impact, obviously. Uh, and so we need to think about, you know, there are, it's not that we could never not, I mean, it's a possibility that we won't always be an only an English language site, but, you know, but I also think we felt like there, that, that skewing also um, meant that a lot of the perspectives on the site were sometimes from, uh, Westerners, that we had stuff written about places that was written by travelers, which is fine and good. And travelers have a really interesting perspective of their own, which we want, but that sometimes it uh, 
those stories didn't weren't as full as they should have been. You know what I mean? That there was something that was sort of left out or or and and never really maliciously, but we so there was one process of sort of auditing what was in the site and looking at language, uh, looking at, you know, any any places that we've sort of said, is there is this a place that we are sure we want to list or is it framed in the right way? You know, like, um, I mean, an interesting example in the U.S. is is just um, is all the plantations in the South, right? Which sometimes are framed as like, <laughs> just like great, beautiful, you know, like it's like where people go to get married and stuff. And it's like, look at all the beautiful willow trees and and there's sites of terrible atrocities in American history. And, and so you just need to acknowledge that. It's not that they're not, there's not something you know, important to say about them or that you shouldn't go, go visit them. But I mean, sort of giving their full context is really important. So some of it was just making sure that we were doing that in all the places we needed to. And then there's this other part of it, which is a a bigger, longer uh, process. But, you know, in its ideal version, Atlas Obscura is not, you know, from a Western traveler, to another Western traveler. In, in its ideal version, Atlas Obscura is not just, you know, one Western traveler writing to another Western traveler. The best places we get into the site are from are from locals, are from people saying there's this thing, you know, 20 minutes outside of my town that is amazing, that people should go see and no one knows about it. And it's like a shame because it it deserves to be celebrated. And, and so the big process that I would like us to work on. And I mean, we all were, were in the midst of it is just expanding that coverage. I mean, we live in a world now where anyone can do kind of work from wherever they are. And it doesn't really, I mean, that was just been true for a long time in a way, but you know, so we just want to, I, I want, I would love to have people who are in rural, you know, Kazakhstan in rural parts of China in you know, like I, I would love to be getting entries from people truly, truly, truly all over the world. And so how you do that, it's a complicated question, but it's, you know, it's something we're starting to kind of work on. Yeah. I just wanted to kind of bring that up and let people know that that was happening because I think that's really important. And also it's not every organization that has the awareness and will take the time to do something like that and to ask those questions and to, to think about how a story is framed and what's included and what needs to be there and what's missing and all that kind of stuff, you know, n- never easy answers, but uh, just the fact that you guys are diving into those questions is important. And our, our strong feeling is that like the full story is the, the most interesting story. Um, our, yeah. Our strong feeling is that the, 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 the richest story, the fullest story is the one that has the most interesting details it's the one that 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 makes you really understand a place and when you have stuff that's let out left out or kind of glided over it it, it doesn't it doesn't um it doesn't do it justice so right yeah. right it's getting the complete narrative right yeah which which is you know yeah complicated we'll be back in a moment this episode is brought to you by u.s bank recently i went out for tacos and it wasn't even friday yes we have taco friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the US Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just 
just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go to learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash altitude go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why We're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. I imagine that this list is packed with some stories, so we should we should probably get into. I love these lists because I don't know them in advance, so I get to learn along with everybody listening. And you have this amazing perspective, being the co-founder of Atlas Obscura, and just having all this knowledge in your head. And I'm really curious, what is Dylan going to pull out of all of this like massive database you guys have and your personal experiences, and put on this list? So we we did it continent by continent. I know it's not, not the end all be all, you know, this could change next week, but oh, totally yeah, subjective, yeah. <laughs> but, but a lot of fun, right? A lot of fun. Um, this is me, how I'm feeling at this particular moment, but yeah. it'll, it still will be a good list. It's funny when I put these lists together myself, we'll do these things. I, I take them so seriously. Like anybody cares by ranking. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just yeah, like, yeah, but in my head, yeah. I'm like, oh, should this be number one? I don't know. You know, where should I put this one here? Oh no, that one's not good. Anyway. All right. So I pulled up the continents in alphabetical order. I thought we could just go continent by continent. You're going to share one of your favorite destinations or sites from each continent, what you love about it, and then pair that with uh, one of these culinary curiosities from the new book. So can we start in Asia? Does that sound like a good plan for you? Sure, sure. Um, Yeah, and I think uh, there's so many ways to do this. I mean, one thing I could do is there's some places where the food curiosity and the place kind of... um, blend into one. So in Asia, I might actually go ahead and do that, which is, um, there's a place that is, is not, it's quite touristy. It's quite popular, but it also is still one of these places that is truly unique in the world. And it has a really interesting food angle, which is, um, Mount Hua, which is this sacred mountain in China, 7,000, uh, feet at the top uh, 7,000 feet above sea level. And, and at the top is this lovely little tea house where you can get a, uh, uh, a cup of tea and sit and look out over the mountains. Um, but to get there, you have to go on what a lot of people call one of the most dangerous hikes in the world. 
and uh, you can take a gondola up for like the first half of the trip up the mountain. But then you basically have to walk along this kind of pilgrimage route, which is these plank planks bolted to the side of this mountain. And what's weird about this is not only is it sort of genuinely dangerous, people fall to their death every year, but it's also quite popular. So it's weirdly touristy. So it's one of these things where you're like, and I find this actually very interesting. Like I find the real version of this more interesting than the, than the kind of um, idealized version. You see a lot of the idealized version, but in reality, like you go, you have to wait in a long line, whatever. And then you're like in this group of people walking this plank walk, but you are also, uh, you know, a thousand feet, like to your left is death. And then you're sort of, you're hooked into these little chains, these little things that are supposed to keep you from falling. But because there's two way traffic, people are like often unbuckling themselves so they can go around each other. And then you'll get to this spot on this, you know, on this mountain pass where like crammed up against the wall is a guy who's sitting there with like a a camera a a printer and uh, a laminator so that he can take your photo and laminate a photo of you like while you're like on the side of this mountain. And the whole thing is just this kind of weirdly bizarre conglomeration of like modern tourism, ancient Chinese tradition, Taoist tea ceremony, Taoist tea tradition. Um, and and I find it very interesting and 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 fascinating. Um, and so that's a that's a really unusual kind of food destination in Asia. Of course, there's like you know, Asia is a big place, right? So yeah, I know. It's a yeah. lot of stuff we can put in there. Yeah. I mean, obviously, one you know, uh, it, it, if you you know, I, I would put Turkmenistan squarely in Asia, and obviously the gates of hell are in Turkmenistan. That's a like perennial favorite. It's a giant burning hole in the Turkmenistan desert that's been on fire for 50 years uh, and is the result of an industrial accident. Basically, a giant drilling rig fell in to this, set up there to drill natural gas, collapsed in, made this chasm. Uh, and and then these Soviet petroleum geologists who were doing this in the early 1970s decided to set the hole on fire. Uh, so that it wasn't leaking natural gas everywhere, uh, and it's been burning for for yeah for fifty years. So really? wow. that's a that's a great one. The gates of hell is an absolute is an absolute classic. Um, not really a food angle, although I've heard of people going there and like trying to roast marshmallows over right. it. Right, okay. It's also like releases a lot of gas gas, so I wouldn't recommend. I wouldn't eat the marshmallows after you've roasted them anyway. <laughs> right. That's wow. That sounds. I have to look that up after this. Listen, it's a travel podcast, so honorable mentions are more than welcome. Dylan. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we want to hear the more the merrier. All right, let's move over to Africa. Yeah, okay. So so this one is two separated places. Um, and one of them, it's a little bit of a cheat, but it's it's because it's sort of in Africa and sort of not, because it's off the coast of the Horn of Africa. And it's a place uh that I learned about about maybe 10 years ago um, called the Milky Seas. And it's for hundreds of years, maybe even thousands, there were accounts of sailors um, sailing through areas that they would say were basically a glowing sea from, from 
you know, horizon to horizon, that they would enter these periods of, of these areas where, where they could see nothing but the water glowing up. And the, for a long time, there was no, I mean, it's even mentioned in, in, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Jules, Jules Verne's book, that the, this, um, this idea of these milky seas. And there wasn't really any scientific evidence that this existed. And it was kind of chalked up to sailors' you know, tall tales or at least exaggerations. And then in 2006 at a conference, there was basically – there's a marine biologist who was talking to an oceanic satellite expert. And they started – wondering if you could see bioluminescence from space. And the, 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 the conclusion was almost certainly no. There's just no way. But the satellite expert, a guy named Steve Miller, who I've interviewed a couple of times about this, has decided to go back and just for funsies kind of look. And so he went, he looked or started on the internet and was just Googling and found a report from the 90s of a ship called the SS Lima that said it had sailed through a Milky Sea. And, you know, it was a modern ship, so it had exact coordinates. So they knew where it was when it was reporting this. And he pulled up satellite data, and it turns out there was satellite data for that patch of ocean on a really perfect night with no moon, you know, very little cloud cover. And he took this image, and he sort of started doing – he really did one of these things that you see in the movies where he's like, enhance, enhance. Like, he, he had to run it through a bunch of stuff to bring out the contrast. And when he did this – the image emerged this picture of a of a patch of ocean the size of Connecticut that was glowing. And this was the first confirmation of this, uh, the existence of, of the Milky Seas. And when I talked to him years ago, you know, it was kind of frustrating because at that point, the satellites weren't really good enough. It, it was, it, this was just a lucky hit, but it was almost impossible to figure out, you know, where another Milky Sea was going to be and and to get the satellite data to confirm it. So he spent the next many years, like really 10 years, basically training, like figuring out algorithms for satellites so that they could filter out something called um, air glow, which is like there's this glowing layer of the atmosphere. It's, 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 not, it's not like the um, Northern Lights. It's this other thing that's constant. But like satellites have to look through it and how they could figure out to like, you know, uh, discount reflections of clouds on the ocean, all this stuff, all this interference. And he very recently, basically, they figured it out. The satellite technology has advanced enough where now they just saw another for the first time. They were basically able to confirm another example of the Milky Sea. This one's off the coast of Java. Um, but the first one was off the coast of Horn of the Horn of Africa, and, and ma- many of them seem to be off the coast of the Horn of Africa, and um, and and now they think that they are actually going to be able to confirm them in real time, that they'll be able to sort of start to spot them, and then the next step is to actually send like a s- team of scientists out while they're happening because they can last for weeks and weeks, and so the fact that there's this phenomena of bioluminescence on the scale of, you know, states happening that we basically don't understand. We don't really know how it works. They're still not totally certain how that many bacteria can even come together and do this all at once. It's, there's this thing called quorum sensing involved where once the bacteria know that there's enough other bacteria, they start to glow. But it's like, it's very mysterious. And the fact that this sort of exists in our world and we're just barely scratching the surface of it, to me, is like a really wonderful example of, of, of how much there is sort of still to discover. So 
And I just, it's just beautiful. And talking to Steve, the scientist, about how excited he is to have like, this is his life's work to have confirmed this to like maybe, well, he's like a living scientist go and take a boat out and sail it into one of these milky seas is like really cool. So that's my place. like his own personal Atlantis in some ways. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) truly, truly. But but it's there. It's real. It it happens in the world. And so um, so that's one that I I love that story. And and then on the food side, um, I'm going to choose one that's just really fun which is something called the miracle berry. And that is uh, a small red berry. It tastes a little bit like uh, a lesser cranberry, um, but it's so it's from West Africa. And it's not from us, you know, we have it in the book on Gastro Obscura in Burkina Faso, but you can find it in a number of countries. But um, it tricks your taste buds so that things that, taste sour, suddenly taste sweet. And people in West Africa have been using the berry for hundreds, probably thousands of years um, before they would eat sort of sour bread or sour wine to kind of give it this much like improved flavor. And um, and in the 70s, there was a scientist who, who wanted to use these miracle berries to potentially kind of replace sugar. And there's this whole thing about how well he was trying to do this. He said he was being tailed and then his office got broken into and and then it was and then sort of shortly after this miracle berries the FDA put them on a like as a kind of special type of ingredient which means that they're really it's really hard to like use them in food as an additive in any way uh, and that's been true since the 70s and so they're kind of you know because of that they're sort of this novelty no one's ever been able to do the real work to actually see if there's a way to use them as a as a sugar replacement um but uh, but they're really fun. You can order them on the internet. You can get them freeze dried or as little tablets. And like me and my son, uh, who's six, ate these. And then we tried lemons. And the lemons are like really sweet. They're like you're, they're delicious. Actually, you could eat a whole lemon just like like uh, you know like like it was an orange. Um, sour cream tastes like you know whipped cream basically. And there's this whole. It's like it, they're really fun. They're really an interesting uh, sort of sensory experience yeah that's wild because you're using it as a conduit to experience other foods right in some ways yeah. and it's uh it sounds like something straight out of willy wonka's factory right totally 100 like, percent. wallpaper take some miracle berries here you know? yeah 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 <laughs> no that is what they're like it's 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 wild okay um, so for those out there that are like, hey, that wasn't an alphabetical order. I just realized we started with Asia, went to Africa. Yes, not exactly an alphabetical order. Sorry. But we're going to move to Antarctica now. Uh-huh. Curious what you what you have for this one. Sure. Uh, I So separate again. Um, and uh, in Antarctica, my favorite place is a place called Blood Falls. And it's a little bit similar maybe to Milky Seas in the sense that it's a bit, it's got sort of a scientific mystery or a scientific surprise wrapped up in it. But Blood Falls is what it sounds like. It's a it's a uh, more than three-story tall frozen blood-red waterfall leaking out of the side of this glacier. Uh, and it's way remote. It's way, way, way out there. Um, but scientists were super curious about, like, what this was. What was happening? Is it iron? Is it what? And what it turns out to be is that this glacier um, millions of years ago trapped 
a body of water. It's a little bit like the Seneca deer, actually, but microbial. This glacier trapped a, a body of water underneath it. And inside of that were some kind of ancient microbes. And they evolved to be able to eat essentially what was available to them. And what was available to them was iron. They basically eat iron. And their whole like energy system comes off of this like of, of, of pulling iron apart in certain ways and then depositing other bits of it. And the science of this, I'm getting, I'm doing a poor job of explaining. But what it, what it does is it creates this, um, you know, this, this like blood red uh, water that then there's a fissure and then is leaking out slowly. Uh, and so they're able to actually sample this and like learn more. These are these are real kind of extremophile uh, bacteria that have been on their own evolutionary path for for millions of years, kind of isolated. And so, yeah, it's a big, it's a site. Uh, it's a big science site. It's a weird, I mean, they, they, you know, NASA was interested in these because they're an example of how alien life might actually like live. They, they, they live in such an extreme environment uh, and yet have found this really novel way of, of surviving. Um, so that one is just awesome. The food, the food one is unexpected. People eat so well in Antarctica. If you are on one of the big bases, you're, they have hired a really top-notch chef. They have brought in as many good ingredients as they can. And at the start of the year, you have a lot of what they call freshies or just fresh vegetables. And then as things go on, they run out, you know, and, and things get a little more monotonous. Uh, but some of the big greenhouses, like the, the Great Wall are, uh, base, has a, a really functional year-round greenhouse that they can they can eat fresh vegetables uh, all year. So they're kind of like the envy of the others. But if you're like, say you're on the Concordia base, that's run by Italy and France. So you're eating like, you know, chicken parm and foie gras and like, I mean, it really is like a fancy menu. Like it's really, because there's so little variance in, in anything else in Antarctica. And these scientists, it's like a hard job they have. It's freezing out. It's the same every day. But I mean, it's just like, so the food becomes a really important part of moral uh, support. And so they, they, the bases put a lot of effort and, and money into their food. So there's not exactly one dish. You know, you could go back and choose something from Shackleton's time, you know, pemmican, sort of this like beef jerky uh, or, or, you know, but but I'm more interested in the in the fact that like, yeah, you can eat really, really well if you're on a base in in Antarctica. And it's it, obviously like tons of people get those. Speaking of interesting, weird ways to travel, a lot of people get jobs working in the kitchens uh, at like McMurdo um, and, and other stations because it's a huge part of the, the the process, the effort, you know. Yeah, I love that. It's a sort of unexpected. You think, oh, I'm all the way down here on the frozen continent. I'm eating a Michelin star meal or something. You know, it's totally. not what you expect. <laughs> and I think for like an up and coming chef, it's a really interesting challenge. Like spend a year in Antarctica, you know, like trying to like make stuff that's going to like delight the 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 scientists working down here. You know, there's bars like all these bases have their own bars. The Ukrainian station has a bar with like, uh, I think it's, uh, I'd have to check this, Verdansky has, I think, um, 
maybe bras or something all over. It's like surprisingly. Anyway, they're like they're like really. It's a little bit more of a weird party culture and like and like fine dining than anyone would imagine for, yeah. for Antarctica. Wild. There's some chef out there listening right now. It's it's a uh, booking his ticket or her ticket right now. Yeah, uh, it's awesome. All right, let's move over to. Oceania, I guess they call mm-hmm. it now, mm-hmm. not just mm-hmm. Australia, but as mm-hmm. would be Eurasia, New Zealand, sort of that area. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, again, it's like choosing anything at the continent level is, is wild uh, because it's like, there's so much yeah, to choose so from. Yeah. It's, it's, a, but, it's, ridic- it's a ridiculous task that I've given you. But, but, but we're going to try. Know that. We're going to try. We're going <laughs> to do it. Um, so for place, I'm going to choose another one of my my longtime favorites um, called the Mari Man. So in the outback of Australia, where there are, you know, these just sort of small towns, indigenous um, settlements, there's it's pretty remote and pretty rough living in a lot of ways. Um, And a lot of stuff gets delivered by plane out there. And one day in the late 90s um a plane was flying over the desert and it did this run regularly so you know it was the pilot was accustomed to the landscape and what he was seeing and he looked down and he saw something that hadn't been there before in the desert was carved one of the largest geoglyphs so a giant drawing in the dirt that has ever been made called the Mari man. And it wasn't there the year before someone mysteriously in the night. We don't really know went out to the desert and carved a multi mile long drawing of an Aboriginal, uh, sort of warrior, um, holding this this kind of traditional weapon this stick weapon but but weirdly it's like wrong you can like like looking at it people were very quickly like oh this almost certainly wasn't made by the indigenous aboriginals here because this drawing doesn't really isn't quite correct in a number of ways and and the, the interesting thing is to do this drawing you almost would have to have gps which barely existed at this point um, you almost would have to have some, there was a military base nearby, American military base, and they almost definitely would have had access to GPS. So there's a lot of conjecture that this was carved by American soldiers. Uh, but, but why? And also like who, there's no one's ever come forward to claim it. Um, and so now the Mari man has become this kind of interesting, and there's like a lot of follow on debate. There was some back and forth between two different indigenous groups, one who wanted to keep it, one who wanted to erase it because they felt that it was sort of a desecration of sacred land. Then there's like local, um, bar owners who have sort of made it their like mascot. And now it's like people come to this area just to see, take a flight to see the Mari man. So there's all this like additional drama that happens afterwards. But basically in the Australian desert is one of the largest pieces of figurative art in the world. And, and, and we still have no idea who made it. It is an absolute mystery of who made it exactly how they made it, why they made it. 
tell. That's a that's a, that's one that I I really love. Um, I think, and then um, I'm just grabbing the book here to. Uh, so and then on the food side, you know, Australia's an interesting one because it's so much of the indigenous Aboriginal food culture was was absolutely destroyed um, by by you know British colonialists, and so um, it's got in a way a kind of uh a kind of like shallow food, food history, you know what I mean? Like, like in a lot of places. And and, I mean, there's some places where that's, that's um, less true, but, but, you know, Australia is, um, is still sort of establishing what exactly Australian cuisine really is. And so the thing that I, there's this, there's this train that you can take from the top of Australia to the bottom of Australia. Um, and it stops along the way and sort of uh, you can sample like each area of Australia's different food styles, including indigenous styles uh, in the outback. And so you're getting like sheep up in the north and then um, uh, it's like kangaroo down as you go farther south. And um, yeah, it's called the Gone Train, the historic Gone Train. And so, you know, it, it starts in Darwin and goes to Adelaide. So you're you're doing a kind of straight through the middle of Australia trip. And then you get to kind of, you know, see the full country. You get to see the really remote part of the country. But because you're on a train, you're not in danger of like your car breaking down and you dying in the sun. And uh, and yeah, and you get to you get to eat uh, all different sorts of kind of regional cuisine. Um and so I think that's really, really interesting. I think the other thing that's not that's happening, you know, more in the cities of Australia, but is the reintroduction of traditional indigenous Aboriginal cuisine is kind of coming back. Uh, restaurants are being opened. There's various projects around to kind of preserve and promote indigenous cuisine, indigenous ingredients. So I think that's really interesting because it's it's bringing back a part of like food culture to Australia that was basically suppressed for, for the last, you know, right. few hundred years. And so, um, yeah. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Who made that drawing? <laughs> if anybody knows, get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, you got to throw it out question. there. You never know. All right. We're moving over to Europe now. What do I want to do in Europe? This is a good question. I think there is so much. Can you choose a country? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I could, yes. Let me, you know, you can't, no, don't, don't choose a country. I'll, I'll, I'll choose something. I mean, I lived in, in Hungary, in Budapest for a year. So I'm going to talk about a food that is actually completely bog standard normal in, in Hungary and in much of the world, but is slept on by America, um, which is a really simple food, uh, which is fat on bread. And instead of butter, it's basically lardo. It's, it's, uh, it's it's pieces of pork fat uh, that are like melted or softened and then spread on bread. And you usually put uh, red onion or, or some other kind of, you know, um, vegetables on it. And and it's absolutely delicious. It's just like a, it's like a real country standard sort of like it's not it's not fancy. It's like village country village fair in in uh, Hungary. And so. Um, is it one of those things that sort of people ate just to survive as part of thing and now it's become 
more appreciated, I guess. It, I, it was, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's just been around forever. It's it's really their version of bread and butter, and 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 I think we for whatever reason, America. <laughs> yeah, it's bread and butter, but but just like a different source of animal fat, really, you know. Um, and and for whatever reason, Americans, you know, we used to work with lard a lot more, but like have sort of, you know, in some at some ver- period of like health craze decided that we should eat Crisco instead, which is like so much worse for you uh, than than lard actually is. And so um, so, you know, lard eating kind of straight animal fat is a lot more and cooking with it is a lot more present in Europe and Eastern Europe, particularly. Um, so that, that is a, that is a food that I, I like and miss it. That, That's great, man. Yeah. Is there a, like a site maybe in Eastern Europe then that you've come to? Yeah. I was going to choose something from our, from our travels around there. Um, so I think, well, you know, there's a, this is a, this is a pretty famous one, but there's just nothing like it in the world. So we're going to go to the Czech Republic, uh, to a town, uh, called Kutnahara. And we're going to visit the Bone Church, which is like quite internationally uh, well known at this point, but but is really worth a stop if you're in the area. Um, it is it's it's an example. There are a number of these around around the world, especially throughout Europe, um, but it, of an ossuary, which is a place where tons of bones have been taken and stacked and arranged in an interesting way. So obviously the French catacombs are probably the most famous and touristy example of this. Um, but there's other ones all, especially over all over Eastern Europe, um, sometimes much lesser known. Uh, but the thing that makes uh Sedlitz ossuary is what this church is called so unique and, and, and incredible. It's just the scale of it and the sort of artistry of it. So you walk down into this, this church space. Um, and, and the entire place is decorated in bone. So there's a bone chandelier with bone sort of garlands coming off of it. There are these pyramidal pyramid stacks of bones kind of kept behind bars. So I guess people don't mess with them. There are, you know, all these like ornate pillars are there, old skulls and angel sculptures, but also surrounded by skulls. And, uh, and it's just like, it is a totally different relationship with death than, than America has. And, and the most of the, most of the Western world has, but in sort of the older, you know, um, traditions of Catholicism, there was a, a real idea of kind of looking death in the face, this memento mori idea, that, you know, sort of acknowledging that we too will become bone, that we too will become dust. It was like an important part of religious experience, of thinking about God. And so this, this you know, Sedlitz was, um, this whole region was like very important. The graveyard of this church was important because very early on, dirt from the Holy Land, dirt from from Jerusalem was, was brought back. And it made it like the most desirous place to get buried, uh, which the problem was, of course, that they ran out of room. It's not that big a cemetery. So they had to constantly unearth old remains to put in new remains. And the old remains would get added to and stacked in this church. And they were all uh, arranged by by a, a, a woodcarver in the in the 1800s. And um, and it's just it's amazing. It's there's not much else like it. there's some other there's a lot of incredible ossuaries in Italy that you can visit as well. 
Uh, but I, I chose this one because it's just like I, I, I have a plaster skull. In that case, I didn't get a coffee cup. I got a plaster skull. OK. And so I still I still treasure my plaster call from, skull from Sedlitz Ossuary. Man, talk about a, a visual representation of death right in your face. Just yeah, a bone church. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever been to any ossuaries? No. Oh, man. You got to go. You're not that far from some. I mean, Scandinavia has its own history of ossuaries. Um, I'm trying to think where I could send you. I'll have to check, but I'm pretty sure there are some examples. Are there any examples in Norway? Mm, maybe in Sweden. I'll, I'll take a look and I'll send you. But you're not far away from an ossuary. You're much closer to an ossuary than I am. There are basically no ossuaries in America, unfortunately. We won't expect those then for our next two destinations. That's North yeah. America and South America. We're finishing yeah. with the Americas. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll go fast. I'm taking a long time to do these, but I'll speed up. Okay. I mean, listen, this is what it's all about, right? The backgrounds yeah. and the stories. So Yeah. So <laughs> North America. Um, so North America, I will go to Bishop's Castle in Colorado. Uh, it is way out on a back road in kind of the mountains of Colorado. And it's the singular project of a guy named Jim Bishop. Um, and he, 30 years ago, got it into his head that he wanted to build a castle. So stone by stone, pretty much single-handedly, he began building an enormous medieval-style castle. And if you pull up on this place today, you are greeted by a 16-story tall stone castle with wrought iron bridges, hand-welded. There's a dragon at the top of the castle that can be made to breathe fire using like acetylene, uh, like torch style, whatever. Uh, and, and, And I went in winter, and when I went in winter, he wasn't there. But you're supposed to sign a form that basically says, if I accidentally fall to my death, it's my fault, not yours. Uh, but it's one of these places where, like, you can go. I explored it. There's no one there. I explored it on my own. It's open to the public. Uh, and it is genuinely feels a little bit like I went up to the top and walked across some of these, like, steel, <laughs> these welded uh, steel uh, bridges. And, man, you are like, oh, like, this is this is real sketchy. Like, it is definitely a place where you feel like, oh, I am taking my life into my own hands, but it, but in the best way, in the best possible way. And it's, and it's so, it's just incredible that, that one person made this. Um, and, and I, it's an example of a whole kind of type of, uh, structure, you know, these self-built outsider art structures that happen all over the world, but are, you know, a big part of what Atlas Obscuro like celebrates is, People who just sort of say, this is the thing I'm going to do. This is the thing I'm going to do with my whole life. I'm going to I'm going to build this, you know, giant sculpture garden in the forest of India. I'm going to make this 16 story tall castle in, in the mountains of Colorado. And so that is a place that will never disappoint. I think it's impossible to go there and be like, this was not cool. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, uh, isn't it? I don't know. It's always inspiring to me when there's this guy like Jim Bishop, somebody out there that gets this idea in their head that makes no sense for the modern world, really. I mean, yeah. what? It, it's not really to accomplish anything other than to kind of create something that's in their head and sort of, I don't know what it is, contribute it to the world, but it's a, like you said, it's so far out in the middle of nowhere. So, 
and, and but then, then dedicate your life to it. It's so inspiring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I, I am sort of obsessed with 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 obsession and with people who right. who dedicate their lives to these incredible projects that like right often don't deliver like great monetary rewards and they're hard and they're like, you know, and, and I think um, we'll see what happens with Jim Bishop in, in a lot of these cases. When the creator dies, it's it's they it's very hard for the places to survive. And one of the things that Atlas sort of aims to do, actually, is that by increasing kind of tourism interest in these kinds of places, you increase the, the likelihood that they'll stick around because at the, you know, at the local or state level, they actually say, oh, you know what, though, this is like a tourism asset. Like we got to figure out how to keep this yeah, right. from, from falling to pieces or, or getting, you know, bulldozed or whatever. I mean, yeah. Jim Bishop's castle is like definitely not to code. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's yeah. way outside of code. Um, <laughs> um, but that's a cool place. And then on the food one, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go to Minnesota where I grew up. Um, and I could cite a bunch of stuff. I could say, you know, like I grew up, I'm Scandinavian, my family's Scandinavian. So we brought a lot of that food with us and um, uh, like, like a few generations back. And uh, so I ate a lot of pickled herring, a lot of lefse, um, and of course, lutefisk, lutefisk. Yes. Uh, and, uh, which have you ever had, uh, lutefisk? Yes. I had a weird experience with that. Uh, uh, not my favorite. Let's say I, it's let's not say any... it, it was paired with coffee. Okay. I'll just start there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, interesting. Yeah. No, it wasn't interesting. It was, it was, tar- it was terrible. <laughs> well, yeah. So lutefisk is dried fish, which is then rehydrated by soaking it in lye which makes it poisonous and then you have to wash the lye out with repeated water rinses and you're ended up with this basically this fish jelly this strongly smelling fish jelly um and it's funny because it's much more popular in like minnesota and wisconsin than it is in scandinavia like people in scandinavia basically like don't really eat it anymore or not much Obviously, if you've had some, so someone's eating it, but it's it's not that it's it's more common in these Scandinavian families in the Midwest. Um, so that's a great one, and I I, I cite it often as an example. You know, sometimes people sort of want to look at the new book Gastro Obscura, and they're like, "So this is all about weird foods," and it's like sort of, but weird is entirely and one hundred percent relative. You know what I mean? So if you grew up eating lutefisk, it's not that weird. Uh, but but um, another Midwestern delight that maybe I'll choose as my real example is and and that you haven't had a terrible experience with is uh, is uh, the butter sculpture at uh, the Minnesota State Fair. So every every year there's a there's a little booth where uh, the contestants for Princess K of the Milky Way sit and get their heads carved in ninety pound blocks of butter and. This has been going on for decades. Uh, it, it, in, in fact, it dates back to a really old tradition of a woman who sort of became a butter carving star in the 1800s. She carved butter in front of like an auditorium of 2,000 people. Um, but you can find this at not just the Minnesota State Fair. I think the Iowa State Fair does it. A couple other state fairs do butter carving now. Um, and it, it also, it's not the only place in the world where this happens. Uh, there's a big Tibetan butter carving tradition too but it's it's um it's a monastery tradition tibetan monks 
carve these incredible sculptures out of yak butter and they color them with mineral pigments and they make these like beautiful sort of um, profoundly complex, colorful um, uh, things that are then fed back to the yaks at the end of the celebration. And so anyway, uh, so I like I like those. Those are some North American things, butter carving and giant self-built castles. We'll be right back. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press. But I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago. And immediately, I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks, so they also make an exceptional gift. Thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever Zero to Travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me. Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. I love that you brought it back to Minnesota. I mean, you're from Minnesota, so Minnesota nice. It all makes sense now. Yeah. You know? Um, <laughs> yeah. No, it's funny. I love that you picked Ludafisk and I'm in Scandinavia and you went, we went to Minnesota for that. That's awesome. Yeah. And my memories of the Minnesota State Fair many years ago were... The baby races, there were baby races. They had uh, a yeah. <laughs> literally yep. like lane set up where babies yeah. would race. There was, was it at Minnesota? I saw the mutton humping. Maybe that was another one where, where kids ride like sheep, like a, like rodeo sheep. I don't know that it's maybe that, that might've been possible, my state. But, but that feels like I, that might've been I Kansas. I don't know if I've ever seen that might've been yeah, Kansas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That feels like a Kansas. It's slightly more Western than Minnesota in its style. Yeah. Yeah, some of the state fairs are blending together for me at some point. They're similar. I, I went to a lot of them, yeah. But uh, one great meal I had in Minnesota outside of a venue when I was on working as a tour manager for a band, they uh, had a restaurant where you could pick like a, a mystery dish. I forget what the name of the restaurant was. And it was legit. Like you weren't allowed to return it, you know? And I just loved that they put that on the menu because I've eaten at a lot of places. I've never seen a restaurant actually have a mystery dish where... Hey, you just, you have to order it. And if you order, you don't have to order it, but if you order it, it's, you just get what you get. Yeah, it is what it is. So I ordered it and I was very happy. It was, it was meatloaf and mashed potatoes. (laughs) I was very very happy. You know, I was like, yeah, when it came, but it was like that kind of like, oh, is this going to be good? If it's not, this is going to be a long night, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. So that was kind of fun. Totally. All right. So we'll, we'll head down South, South America, last pit stop here on this wild 
hidden wonders of the world list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so South America, I have to go to one of my favorite places that I've ever been to. Maybe we've talked about it before even. We're going to go to the Quechua or what's sometimes called the Last Incan Bridge. This is about three hours south of Machu Picchu. Um, and instead of being completely overrun with people, it's generally, at least when I was there, which is quite a while ago now, um, it, you're, you're, maybe you'll see a couple of other people come through. But the Quechua is a suspension bridge over a, you know, a gorge with a river running below it. It's a big suspension bridge. It's, it's like uh, 70 feet across, maybe. And, um, and what makes it so unique are two things. One, it's, it's entirely woven out of grass. And so it's made out of this kind of hay material that grows in the area. And that material is woven into little pieces of twine, and those are woven into pieces of rope. And eventually the rope is woven into these big cables that make up the, 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 the big supports of the bridge. But because it's woven out of grass, it has to be cut down every year and rewoven because it starts to rot, basically. So every year this bridge is remade in this big ceremony in the summer where the four villages come together. Every household is responsible for a certain amount of, of twine and, and they, they remake this bridge uh, year after year. The other reason it's spectacular and the bridge is incredibly strong, by the way. It sounds, it's scary to walk across because it's a suspension bridge and it sways as you walk. And as it goes on in the year, it gets slightly more dilapidated. So like the, the you know, it starts off with these sticks as kind of the, the floor of it, but then they start to kind of tilt and slide. And But it, that said, it, it can hold like 50 people comfortably. It's really a strong bridge. Um, but the other reason it's amazing is that it's been made the exact same way since the Incan Empire. This is a little surviving piece of Incan infrastructure. And it made the same way today as it was 500 years ago, 600 years ago. Uh, and it's still overseen by a bridge master who's basically a descendant of the first bridge master. And so it's this kind of astonishing piece of cultural history. And they don't need it anymore. There's a, there's a steel bridge that trucks can go across and stuff, you know, just like a mile away, you can you can see it basically um, from the 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 rope bridge, but uh, it's just it's just this incredible feat, and I loved being there. I've never been able to go down during the actual celebration, but uh, but I would really like to return and and partake in 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 building the bridge. Yeah, that's incredible. And thinking about how you know knowledge being passed down, but then you have this again, visual representation of that where it's like, okay, wow, this isn't just, you know, theoretical. These, these people are <laughs> passing down this knowledge from generation to generation and keeping this tradition going and alive. It's Well, and if you think about it, the Incans in particular were masters of fiber. You know, they were sort of on before they were very rudely <laughs> interrupted. <laughs> uh, you know, they were like the Roman Empire. I mean, they were they were this vast, sprawling empire with with a road system uh, thousands, uh, you know, like fifteen hundred kilometers long across South America, running up and down. You know, collecting taxes and the way you know their the 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 tax keepers use this quipo system to basically keep track of, of all of the census data of towns and keep ta track of taxes. And, and a lot of what the Incans did was, was, you know, advanced and sort of innovative, you know, uses of, of fiber 
as a technology. And so the bridge is an interesting example of sort of that, that same technological progression. Um, there's this really sort of ridiculous thing about like, well, they never invented the wheel. It, totally false. The wheel was fully invented. They had the wheel. They knew what the wheel was. They had toys with the wheel. But they were living in a mountainous environment where having a wheel was basically useless. They don't. What they didn't have is explosives. If they had explosives, I'm sure they would have gladly blasted flat, you know, uh, uh, roads and and you know switched to to a, a wheeled system with llamas pulling carts or something. But it made absolutely no sense to use a wheel in that environment. So it was all systems of stairs bridges, you know, running paths that were used as as the the communication and, and transfer system. So, you know, it's a I, I love to sort of think about what what different, you know, kinds of uh, systems and technological systems sort of developed and how they might have developed uh, sort of had they been left in isolation. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then the. Cool. The food yeah, the is food, yes. uh, need the food. How are you going to pick the, a food? Jeez. The, yeah, yeah. There's there's a million, but I'm going to pick a. We're in Peru, so I'm going to kind of stay in Peru, uh, and I'm going to pick guinea pig, which I've eaten. It's delicious. Uh, it's sort of served usually in a kind of roasted, um, and I'm going to pick an example. This has been going on for a really long time, and part of the reason we know it's been going on for a really long time is there's a painting. Um, from the 1700s, the 1730s, uh, and it's a very traditional Catholic painting of the Last Supper because obviously by this time Spain has fully um, colonized Peru and 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 much of South America, um, and so Catholicism is is everywhere. But in this painting of the Last Supper, which is exquisite and beautiful, on the table being served is a roast guinea pig. Um, as an as a sort of note, as a nod to tr- traditional um, foods, and there might have been kind of a, a bit of a subversive um, context to it as well. Here, I can I'll show it to you. It's kind of great. Um, oh yeah, this is if you yeah, look yeah. closely. Uh, <laughs> nice. And and so, you know, uh, it's just an example of a kind of and what's funny is now long seen as kind of a you know maybe a peasant food. Um, it's really become sort of elevated and guinea pig is showing up in kind of the fancy restaurants in, in Lima these days. Uh, like a lot of, this is a, a story, an old story, which is like a sort of uncool, lowbrow peasant food, you know, gets elevated. Um, but, uh, but it's, it's, uh. There, it's good. <laughs> Guinea pig is good. Long tradition of eating it across Peru, and um, and yeah. So I think that's my yeah, choice. incredible. I, I think it's safe to say that this list was epic, in my opinion. <laughs> that was incredible. I, the problem is we could start again right now. Oh, you yeah. could just go back, and I would just choose different stuff. I oh, would man. choose different things for every <laughs> continent all over again because I'm just whatever. It's like there's there's a loose soup of ten million things in my head, so. You, uh, you know I'm going to be hitting you up to come back on the Zero to Travel podcast again. So we got plenty sure. of list fodder coming your way, maybe. I hope at least we see if we can get you on. I, I appreciate okay. your time. Of course. I, I you know I wanted to ask you with all your work with Atlas Obscura and, and everything you've been exposed to. I mean, has that at all? How is how has that, if at all, changed? How like sort of your perception of your place in the world as an individual? I mean, 
the whole kind of mission of Atlas Obscura is to give people this sense of surprise and wonder of, of, of what is in the world, of what is possible in the world. And I think it's having done it for a long time now, what is, what's nice about it is, is to be reminded regularly of how little I know, of how little I know about the world, how little I've seen, how little I've done. Uh, and, and, and that diversity, that pluralism of the world is, is truly beautiful. And I think, you know, we live in a time where, where all of our connectedness can make the world feel really small. And the world is not small. The world is enormous. It is filled with more than you could ever imagine. <laughs> and, so, and so I think that that's a nice thing to keep in mind. It's a nice counterpoint to what can be a really cynical, uh, really, really, you know, we live in a, we live in a pretty dark time in some ways. I mean, we're living through a pandemic. We are facing true, you know, potential catastrophe in the form of, of climate change. Um, and yet also true at that same moment is that the world continues to be profoundly beautiful, spectacular, filled with strange, interesting people, uh, fascinating history and, and, and so, you know, I try and keep those things in my head at once because I think it's when you sort of give up on the second part, the world shrinks and becomes very, very kind of crushing. But to know that that, you know, so that 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 world is out there, that big world, that wonder filled world is out there, I think provides us an important counterpoint to, to yeah. you know, all that other stuff. It's a great perspective for daily life. You know, you want to hit everybody with the all the details of where yeah. they should go and what they should get and all that good stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Jason's catching me early in the morning. So I first off apologize for my crusty, confused interview style. Uh, no, second man, off, fantastic. <laughs> uh, second off, uh, yeah, everything is on AliceObscura.com. If you want to know what we're up to, you should go there. We published books. We got our Atlas Obscura book. Most recently, we got a kid's book. Most recently, uh, I co-authored a book called Gastro Obscura, all about the culinary wonders of the world. Um, check that out. You know, if you want to really go go hard with us, we run trips all over the world. In 2022, um, you know, knock on wood, barring complete disasters, uh, as we've had over the last couple of years, we'll be running something like 165 trips all around the world, taking groups of like 12 to 18 people too many of the places I've described and talked about. We go to a lot of these 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 locations that I've mentioned, uh, including uh, many others that I didn't mention. And so we got that going on. So yeah, atlasobscura.com is the place to go find us. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. You know. Yeah, yeah. it's one of my faves. And also, I should mention you guys have a wonderful podcast as well, we, which you host. We do. Of course, I forgot the yes, podcast. Yeah. I, should, <laughs> I should mention that. Yeah, so I'm, yeah, I'm making yeah. my play to get on. You know, if you guys need somebody over in Scandinavia yeah. here to go out to some exotic locations, I, I do have recording equipment, you know, I, I'm just Jason, saying. This is, we, yeah, we run a, an almost daily podcast. It's four days a week, so Monday through Thursday. 
Uh, I am the host of many of those. And Jason, we might take you up on that. It's like a lot of <laughs> it's a lot of show to make. So we're always looking for, for help. <laughs> right on. Well, I appreciate your help and your time today. Thanks for running us through this. Uh, as we said, prefacing this whole thing with this list could change, you know, in, in a hot second, we could re-record this and do another crazy list. All, but, all new uh, things, yeah. I mean, this was, yeah, I just love everything you came up with here. It's so different and unexpected in many ways. So that's, and that's what travel's all about, right? Totally. Kind of fun and the unexpected. So thank you so much for your time. And we'll leave all the links in the show notes and all that good stuff. And Dylan, let's, uh, let's stay in touch. Sounds good, man. Let's do it again. Take care. Dylan for stopping by the show. Can't wait to have you back again, my friends. Thank you uh, so very much. Uh, I love how chock full of stories <laughs> Dylan's head is. I wish I could just, just off the top of my head, rattle off these super engaging, fascinating tidbits of of knowledge from around the world. And it's a skill. It's a it's a gift. And uh, I'm excited that uh, I have this platform to bring Dylan on to share his gift with you and to help us build our ever-growing list of things to see and do around the world. We are curious folks, aren't we, us travelers? So thanks, uh, thanks for, to Dylan for stopping by. Now, I did want to share some exciting personal news. Uh, you can skip this if you don't care about my personal life. You can... Peace out uh, of the podcast right now, and I'll see you next week. But if you want to hear uh, a little bit about my weekend, please indulge me for a moment. I had one of the most thrilling and memorable moments of my life, getting to play a concert in a band to a crowd of about 120 people at a venue in Oslo. Here, I'll play a short clip from our, our live show. go i did want to share a few lessons that uh i was reminded of some things that can uh are, they're universal lessons really whether you want to travel do some other things in life these these were a few things i pulled out I actually included this in my newsletter last week so uh if you are not on the list for the newsletter you can hear some more um, musings get some travel links get updates on uh, all kinds of stuff going on off the podcast at zero to travel.com sign up over there for the newsletter it's free uh, anyway I'll share those lessons in a second but I I just have to say uh, it was special on so many levels because uh, not only was it my very first time but for half of the band the band I mean it's called laundry house we're on Spotify and all that if you want to look it up and you know, it was our first time ever doing anything like this. We're all these guys that have sort of just been playing guitar or, or writing songs or doing our little musical hobby thing, really just kind of on our own, in our own houses, growing up individually. So finally come together with a group of people. This has been a wonderful thing to have, especially over the, the pandemic, to be able to share music uh, with a group of guys, to get together once a week, to, to make original songs, to get to create stuff. And then to then take what we've been doing for a couple years just amongst ourselves and to bring it out into the real world 
where Oslo had just opened up pretty recently. This is really the first concert of the season. It was the first concert of the season for this venue. And there were, it was just special on so many levels because, like I said, it was my first show. It was a, a, a full crowd there. People were resonating with the music, which was awesome. Granted, it's like friends and friends of friends and things like that, so a very friendly crowd. But what, what a feeling to see people uh, react, to be able to share music that you kind of just been playing on your own in a little bubble for years for a couple years at least uh and and then actually get out of that bubble in the bomb shelter basement of where we practice and to just get out and be able to hug people and high five people and see people you know dance and smiling and even singing some some words which was a, a real highlight for me to see wow these people are mouthing some words i have actually like wrote some of these words this is crazy this is like blowing my mind right now so uh, super grateful. It was a wonderful uh, concert. Who knows? We're going to play more concerts. Who knows if, if we'll ever be able to match uh, that experience. But uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And it reminded me that, wow, you can still have that that thrill like you get from traveling, right? You know that thrill when you go into a new destination, you kind of, it's just thrilling. That's the word that keeps coming up. Being able to um, kind of live somewhere and, and still be able to um do things that give you such a thrill, such a thrill. And, uh, and this shared experience um, amongst humans was, was just awesome. So a few lessons I just wanted to share with you that I, I pulled out from that. Uh, first of all, when all said and done, uh, first lesson for me, a, a reminder, I should say, is getting out of your comfort zone is always worth it, no matter how scary it seems at the time. Because I was pretty nervous. (laughs) I think we all were, all of us who haven't done this before, and even those that had. And it was just a reminder that, wow, I I should say almost always, but I almost say all the time, getting out of your comfort zone is is a good thing. And it's not easy to do because it's easy to kind of just be like, well, we don't have to push ourselves that much because it's really uncomfortable to do X, Y, or Z. But every time I get out of my comfort zone, it's just such a payoff, you know, in the long run. It, 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 it just, I don't know, it builds some kind of muscle. It, it makes me a better person personally just for my own internal mental health. I feel like I, you know, stared something down and, and then overcame it even if I bombed or even if it didn't come out as good as I thought it was going to be and whatever it is I'm doing. Just getting out of the comfort zone is, is maybe the point sometimes so just just a reminder there on that number two was no matter how bad you screw up or how many mistakes you make people are generally forgiving when you have the right attitude and boy did i make a lot of mistakes on the stage luckily we have a lot of guitars in the band so maybe they blended in a bit uh but you know i know i screwed up some parts and things like that but you know we were having fun crowd was having fun and you know it's that attitude you bring right I mean, it's, I think this goes for work, for creative work, for any anything that you're putting out there, when you're putting yourself out there. I feel like people are just forgiving if you just have sort of the right attitude. And to me, like with this podcast, I think, uh, sp- to use a specific example, my intention here, my attitude is really to serve you. This show's for you. So I want to make it fun. I want to make it entertaining. I want uh, you to come away with... Uh, some inspiration, some practical advice, you know, mix of all these different things that we do on the show. 
and I want to have a good attitude about the whole thing and really try to put something else out there. Does that mean I never screw up or every show's great? No, of course not. I screw up all the time, as, as you hear. I mean, this is why I have an editor. You should hear how much I screw up without the editor. <laughs> so, but you know what? No matter how much you screw up, how many mistakes you make, whatever you're doing, people don't care. They, they really, it doesn't bother them as long as you really have the right attitude, treat people with respect, you're there to serve, uh, whether it's an audience, uh, your customers, uh, your friends, your family, whatever, it really goes along the way. So I, I was reminded to not uh, worry too much about making mistakes and screwing up. So I wanted to share that with you. And lastly, this kind of ties in, it's not about you, it's about others. So whether it's music, business, something else, reminding yourself uh, that they're, that you're there to serve others or maybe to hold space for others. If you're sitting down with a friend, having coffee, and, and they need you to lend an ear, maybe you're holding space for people. There are a lot of ways to, quote, unquote, serve others or just kind of be there for people, right? I think it takes a lot of the pressure off yourself, gets you out of your own head, and it makes everything more fun because when you're scared to do something like play a concert and then you remember, oh, this isn't about me. This is about these people that are coming to have a good time. So let's just kick some butt and, and do the best we can and show these people a good time and forget all the junk going on in our own heads. When we put the focus on others and showing them the good time or the good experience, I mean, you've, you've probably seen this and you know this as a traveler, having received that hospitality, it's such a wonderful feeling. And then, I especially find this with travelers, when you come home and you get a chance to host somebody or show somebody around your hometown, you realize, oh, this is my chance to like be that person for them. They're passing through my town and now I get to be the story that they tell later by just giving them an experience because I, I recommended a food place for them or I took them somewhere, I told them to go on this hike or whatever the case is. I gave these these visiting relatives or these visiting friends or this random stranger passing through town a great experience. I showed them some things they never would have seen and they're going to remember uh, that and remember those stories. So it, it really is about others and, and that really takes the pressure off and gets us out of our own heads. So those were just three things coming out of this uh, crazy weekend concert experience thing that... Uh, I just wanted to highlight and share with you that I think were some good universal reminders for myself and I thought it might be helpful to share those with you. So hope that was okay. Hope you enjoyed it. Now, let's see. I should leave you with a quote, huh? I, I got to get into the quote drawer here. I, I got to dig deep, my friends. This drawer is a mess, by the way. There are plastic bags, chocolate bars, random receipts that I haven't um, paid off, a dead cell phone that needs to be charged. There you go. <laughs> Uh, it's one of those drawers. Anyway, here we go. This one's from the late, great Thich Nhat Hanh, who said, Your true home is not limited by time, space, nationality, or race. There you have it. Another one in the books. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being a part of this community. Much love to you, to your family, to your friends. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. And I'll see you next week. Peace and love. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.